This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February 21st, 2020. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Uh, we have a really interesting show with for you today. It's a, a mashup between our president, annual President's Day show and we're also celebrating and discussing Black History Month and, and the intersection of those two uh, recognition celebrations uh, with our two historian guests that we have here today, one in the studio here and uh, one via phone. Uh, first, let me introduce my in-guest, uh, in-studio guest, uh, Gabriel Graves. Uh, Gabriel is the Program and Partnerships Coordinator for the Prince George's African American History Museum and Cultural Center. He's a human services professional, historian, and educator, and interdisciplinary researcher who has worked within the community outreach and grassroots organizing for the past 14 years. Good morning, Gabriel, and thanks for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, next, uh, via phone, we, I want to introduce our other guest, uh, Matthew Costello. Matthew is the assistant director of the David Rubenstein National Center for the White House History and a White House historian with the White House Historical Association. Uh, Matthew has also been involved in the newest um, program initiative uh, from the White House Historical Association, Slavery in the President's Neighborhood, that we'll be talking about today on the program. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we dive into our program, we wanted to remind our listeners that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management's fe- sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com today. Uh, well, I wanted to set the stage for our listeners and for our program today uh, by, by asking you each a question and then, and then looking at these two things together. And, and I wanted to start with you first, Matthew, around why do we recognize President's Day? Uh, why is President's Day a federal holiday? So uh, originally, um, the celebrations really evolved around George Washington's birthday. Um, it was it was sort of a pseudo national holiday even back to the time that he was alive, and uh, it continued after he died in 1799. Uh, it became a federal holiday in the 1880s. And, uh, and then later, uh, when Congress passed the Uniform Holiday Act uh, in the late 60s, they put a three-year uh, window into there so it would transition over so that um, this holiday would be celebrated on the third Monday of February. So even though, uh, you know, if you look at the federal holidays, um, it, it's still referred to as Washington's birthday. Uh, by moving that holiday to a Monday, the third Monday in February, uh, it's taken on this President's Day uh, Nomaker and, and with that, um, you know, now we see things like uh, it, it becomes a big time for advertisers, uh, you know, consumers, people buying things on sale. Uh, it's become a different type of holiday uh, than it was originally conceived of. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because my wife and I just bought a brand new mattress and got a great discount this, this past weekend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it is it, it is interesting that we, we always have recognized Washington's birthday and that, that we've pivoted over time. And um, Gabriel, I was hoping you could provide us some background on, on Black History Month. How long have we been recognizing it? Um, how long have we been ignoring uh, black history in this country? And you know, as, as I mentioned at the onset, I think today we want to talk about the intersection between uh, President's Day and, and black history here in America, especially uh, beaming out of our nation's capital uh, here in Washington, D.C. Right. Um, well, just as a brief, uh, keeping as succinct as I can, uh, if you know about the man Carter G. Uh, Woodston, he initiated uh, the first celebration of uh, Black History Month, which was originally Negro History Month. It was on uh, February, 6th, February 7th, 1926. And so uh, we've had this going on for a long time, but uh, Negro History Week is how we originally started. That set the stage for Black History Month and going further. And um, February was chosen by uh, Brother Carter because uh, 
it was a time to bring in the birthdays of two prominent Americans in the black experience, uh, Frederick Douglass, his birthday is on February 12th. Um, and then Abraham Lincoln, who was of course not African-American, but he has been well connected with the African-American experience for freedom. He and Frederick Douglass were uh, contemporaries of one another and their dialogues, their debates, especially on the dynamics of equality, not just freeing people from enslavement, but making certain that they were treated as equals, um, their interactions were crucial in setting the stage of Reconstruction era after um, the Civil War. So that's a brief dynamic uh, to understand with Black History Month. Um, there are people now, just as a, as a side note, that have said uh, we probably should go beyond February and start having um, Black History Year because there's only so much that you can cover <laughs> in a time span of one month. And to say that we should have Black History Month as a celebration is important but it should be a part of our standard history throughout the year. And that's why Black History Month was in many ways established to kind of give people um, an introduction, but to also raise, the, raise awareness that this should, be a, this should be seen as our larger um, understanding of American history. There is no understanding of America without understanding the African-American experience. Thanks, Gray Wheeler. I think that that really frames this, this conversation, this issue so well and, and kind of brings me Back to Matthew and, and your new initiative with, with slavery in the president's neighborhood uh, from the White House Historical Association because it's it's really seeking to tell that un, then untold history and right. collecting those stories of those folks who who always have been uh, here and around uh, the nation's capital as it was uh, right. built from nothing. Um, and uh, um, Matthew, could you, you know, tell us a little bit more about that? I know we'll dive into that uh, program in more detail. Sure. So when uh, we started conceptualizing this initiative, um, you know, what we wanted to do was we wanted to find the voices of people within the White House that really aren't represented because, you know, when you go to the White House today, uh, you're pretty much seeing, it's almost like you're seeing a museum of, uh, of decorative arts, of portraiture, of, of, you know, old American furniture, you know, that the president and the first lady live there. Uh, so there are there's, there's these different representations and pieces of, of different moments and eras in American history, uh, but you're not really here. You don't hear much about the people, mm. um, you know, and, and it's particularly the people who built, lived in, worked in, uh, made the president's house function. Uh, those people were essential uh, to not only keeping things running, uh, but also that they had their own stories to share. And, uh, you know, we, we embrace mm. this with the idea that uh, some people refer to the the White House is the people's house. Uh, so we see it as, well, the people's house deserves the people's history. Right. And that starts even before that site is selected because, you know, the story begins with the colonies of Virginia and Maryland and slavery is well established and ingrained in those two states. And the decision to select the nation's capital in that place, I mean, it pretty much guarantees that African-Americans are going to be integral to constructing this new city. And uh, so one of the things we really wanted to do was kind of move away from, from telling stories of the presidents and first ladies, but also the lesser known, the forgotten, but also try to present a narrative that sort of integrates and, and, and tells a story from different perspectives. So it's not just an either or, uh, it's more like Gabriel said, it's a, it's a collective narrative, it's a complete narrative. Thanks so much, Matthew. I think that sets us up perfectly to come back into this conversation about the rise of slavery with the rise of the nation, uh, especially around the period of our founding fathers. And, and before, we'll get into that uh, after a break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're diving into the roots of slavery and how that impacted the construction of our nation's hap capital with uh, two historians, uh, Gabriel and Matthew. Um, and uh, 
Gabriel, I wanted to pick up on what we were talking about right before the break in, in terms of uh, a little more uh, depth on the roots of slavery in our nation and, and particularly what Matthew was talking about before, the selection of the site of the district, the new nation's capital, in between Maryland and Virginia, two slaveholding sites, you know, in, in the 1700s. And, um, you know, how, how did we get there? What did that look like at that, at that point of time? Um, and, the, and then we're going to go to Matthew to kind of talk a bit more about you know, what that experience was like for the founding fathers as they navigated those thorny issues. Okay. Um, what I can speak to more specifically um, in regards to the areas that I know about, I know, you know, when it comes to the design of D.C., uh, have you ever heard of something called the 1619 Project? I have not. Okay, so if you, um, for everyone out there, I would strongly encourage people to go out there and check out that particular project. That project is very crucial because... Um, uh, the 1619 Project reframes uh, the conversation about how our nation was designed, and rather than saying uh, the rather than saying uh, that our nation was uh, begun later, 1619 says our nation was begun with slavery way before the founding fathers uh, got everything established. They say our nation we can't separate the history of enslavement from the development of everything in the background from. Uh, the founding fathers and their principles to how the land itself was developed. You know, you can't separate that story. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I would want to raise up is awareness on how the nation, there's a story with uh, Benjamin Banneker. Benjamin Banneker, he is considered for black Americans as a founding father. <laughs> and it's a really crucial issue for us because Benjamin Banneker was in correspondence with Jefferson at multiple points. Benjamin Banneker was the one who designed the very layout for DC. <laughs> but when it came to his ideas, what happened was that he was not given proper credit because there was another person that George Washington himself was working for. He was a French designer, but that designer bailed out. But Benjamin Banneker, who had a photographic memory, remembered the details and the plans and then added onto them and gave the layout for DC in the area it was. Now Jefferson, of course, you know, had several debates with uh, Benjamin Banneker and in the correspondence that Benjamin Banneker had, he was trying to let Jefferson and others know, you can't ask us to fight for the principles of freedom while not acknowledging us as moral equals. I want to quote this right now. He says, there, uh, if these sentiments of which you are fully persuaded, I hope you cannot but acknowledge that it is the indispensable duty of those who maintain for themselves the rights of human nature and who profess the obligation to Christianity to extend their power and influence to the relief of every part of the human race from whatever burden or oppression they may unjustly labor under, and this I apprehend a full conviction of the truth and obligations to these principles should lead all to. Uh, that was said in one of the responses that Jefferson uh, and Banneker had after Banneker had designed the layout for D.C. and had been trying to let Jefferson know that this nation cannot be promoted in freedom if we are not acknowledged as co-equals. Does that answer your question so much? Absolutely. And I think that that you know, leads us perfectly into something that, that I know uh, in this project of the White House Historical Association that, that Matthew and his colleagues have looked at and, and, and many historians have looked at, which, which is this inherent paradox right. in the Declaration of Independence and in the Founding Fathers of espousing ideals of freedom right. but um, saying that enslaved individuals are, are, are not worth a full person, right. three-fifths of a person. It's, in, it's interesting because I actually went to the Jefferson Memorial um, about three days before and it's an amazing space. I, you know, I always give thanks for the principles that uh, Jefferson and others work through. But then I stop and think a principle will always mean something different for a person that has to labor physically. <laughs> It'd be one thing if Jefferson was laboring alongside those who were enslaved, but he wasn't doing that. <laughs> it was those who were enslaved. And if you want to be technical, it was the Native Americans also, since there was actually an American Indian, Native American slave trade before the transatlantic slave trade. <laughs> Once that got tapped out, they tapped into the transatlantic slave trade, and that led to the conversations that black Americans were having when the White House was being built, <laughs> where they were building it. And as Banneker tried to challenge several times, um, they were being asked to live up for a principle that would never be applied fairly. And that's why, uh, that's why for President's Day, it's a really important thing uh, to keep in mind that these conversations do have impacts. <laughs> when President's Day is happening, do black Americans see you celebrating the founding fathers who were black? <laughs> Do, you see, do they see people saying these people built our White House from the ground up? It's actually a book, by the way, I want to reference real quickly. It's called The Black History of the White House by Clarence Lusane. And it talks about the uh, extensive history um, 
of African-Americans who both instructed presidents and actually helped to build things from the ground up. Yeah, I mentioned all that because um, for all the people that were enslaved and descendants of enslaved, it's very difficult for us to reconcile uh, the Declaration of Independence, which still references Native Americans as vicious savages <laughs> and talks about freedom, but when we were not given our proper credit as equals. Am I making sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Matthew, how does this, this drive against uh, the body of work and the research that, that you and your colleagues are doing and the programs that you have at, at the Historical Association? Well, we, you know, we talk about this, the paradox quite a bit. And, uh, and I think Gabriel is exactly right. Um, you know, depending on who you were asking, everybody had a different idea of what freedom meant or what liberty meant. And for many, uh, including the founding fathers, they saw it as almost like a zero sum game, um, that in order for them to have freedom, only they could have freedom. And that principle is what drove them along with their economic interests, their social status. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people don't seem to understand today is that slavery and uh, enslaved people were directly connected to social status and economic status and well-being. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what a lot of them decided to do was that they were not willing to surrender that. They were not willing to give that up yes. uh, and go back on their own ideas of their own conceptions of freedom and liberty. They were not willing to sacrifice those things for the freedom of others. And, you know, we can, we can certainly appreciate uh, the contributions that the founders gave, but we also have to acknowledge that they were flawed humans who uh, continue to own enslaved people, even after fighting a revolution based on freedom uh, and and equality. Uh, And and I think people like Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton, I, I think they weren't, they didn't really fully understand the powerful uh, nature of the rhetoric they used, because to talk about these things, to talk about freedom, to talk about equality, and then to deny people those things, I mean, you basically set the stage then for everyone else to fight and to struggle for those things. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they understood how powerful that rhetoric really was. I think they thought that things really wouldn't change that much. But the revolution changes all these things. Right. Uh, even if slavery continues, um, it really, and then through the Constitution, it really puts the country on this path that eventually there will be a reckoning over the issue of slavery. Yeah. And, and there's something, if I can add something into that, I think it's interesting because a lot of the things that we're discussing, I think back on how I grew up having, having parents that were uh, educators and we're very much aware of our history because growing up in predominantly black communities, we valued telling the stories that were not being told in the national narratives. I mean, when we grew up, uh, my dad talked about people like Crispus Attucks, who was considered the first casualty of the revolution. <laughs> Crispus Attucks, who was, whose mother was Wampanoag and whose father was an African native. Um, he was always seen as a black uh, founding father because he was the guy who set it off. And many people don't talk about what the founding fathers when it came to uh, talking about revolution, they ignore the slave petitions and revolutions that happened right after Crispus Attucks' death. And they don't have that understanding that the understandings of freedom were vastly different for the founding fathers in their era from Jefferson to Madison and so forth. Their mindset was, like you said, um, like, a, I'm sorry, like a Brother Matthew said, um, their mindset was if we are free as white male landowners, <laughs> then freedom has happened. But for black Americans, they were like, no, we've always had our, we've always won our own freedom. We're not here by choice. <laughs> and that narrative has not been brought into the national discussions because people may not know where to find these stories. They may not know, for example, about, there's a book I have here called The Black Presence in the Era of the American Revolution by uh, Sidney Kaplan. And it was amazing to see um, how many petitions and mass protest movements that happened simultaneously when the revolution was going on that George Washington and others did not want to discuss. And that's a really good conversation on President's Day that um, I'm glad others are having because we can't go forward without having a full story. For black Americans, for Native Americans, and for black Native Americans and um, Afro-Indigenous people, when they look at the founding fathers, they remember how their ancestors said slavery is wrong. When others who don't know about that look at the founding fathers they don't even, they don't even, it's not been a second thought for them to say, oh, George Washington had 317 slaves. Jefferson had 600 plus slaves. James Monroe has 75 slaves. Andrew Jackson had 200 slaves. It doesn't even compute for them 
because there are two different understandings of what freedom looks like. And we have to have that candid conversation on how the reckoning was going to happen, whether they liked it or not, because they were not willing to listen to other people at the table. Yeah, to me, what's, you know, what I'm pulling from this thread that is just something I've never thought about is this dichotomy of, of kind of the desire of the founding fathers to have freedom from the king, from the British crown, right. for <laughs> themselves to run the country as yeah, they, they saw fit. They called it, they called it, they called it political slavery. That, that's, that was how they huh. framed it. Yeah. That the king had them in political slavery. Uh, and what, what's mm-hmm. also funny about that is when the revolution begins, they're arguing that their rights are not being recognized as Englishmen. Yeah. Uh, not you know they don't they don't see themselves as distinctly American. They're saying we deserve the full rights of English citizens. Right. Um, so it's it's sort of an interesting twist of the narrative because most people just assume, oh we that tea was dumped into a harbor and Americans all of a sudden woke up with yep. this consciousness about being free. Uh, but they, they saw it as this was a political fight to the death. Yeah. And, uh, and that, re- and that really that they were the ones that should benefit most from that at the expense of native Americans, African Americans, women. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what they do. And it's interesting too, to that point, because there's something, there was one note I remember going through recently and it, and it it always stings me on President's Day when I think about it, because people love to quote the founding fathers as these men who can't be quote, who can't be questioned as if they're gods, <laughs> instead of, instead of seeing them as human beings. When the Declaration, at one point, um, says that the king had excited domestic insurrections among us, when they are talking about what the British did, um, many are not aware that scholars have agreed that refers to the British offering Virginia to grant freedom to enslave peoples. <laughs> As a side note, by the way, I try to be very careful my language because at the museum, at the Prince George African American Museum, we're very careful not to say, you know, that we have to remember the history of slaves. We try to say enslaved people because they were never slaves. These were people that were taken against their will that never saw themselves as slaves, but as resistance fighters. So while the founding fathers saw themselves as resisting tyranny, African Americans saw themselves in the same position and said they were resisting white supremacy and they were resisting enslavement and not being treated as equals. And when the Founding Fathers wrote the Declaration, their language of fighting against um, insurrections was always uh, seen as fighting against the British meddling in their affairs, but it was never fighting on behalf of the African Americans because the African Americans were actually tempted to go fight for the British when the British said, we'll give you freedom. (laughs) And at several points, that did happen, and so it was a very intricate issue. You have African Americans who fought for the British and who were also torn fighting for the revolutionary side, but realizing that they were on their own side. Jefferson and George Washington, again, were among plantation owners who had lost runaway slaves during the war, and the British offer of freedom made a lot of African Americans wonder which side cared for more freedom. And this is why some of those larger narratives, there's always nuance to it, and we have to talk about that nuance, because it's not necessarily as, I would say, um, sanitized (laughs) as our American narrative has tried to make it out to be. When people say, well, people have fought for our freedom, and that's what we should remember this every year, they may not realize that freedom means very different things to people that had to fight for multiple reasons. You know, same with the Civil War that Frederick Douglass and had. And I think, yeah. And I was going to say, and, and jumping off that point, when you say that people fought for our freedom, don't think of fighting just in terms of wars. Yep. You know, uh, you know to, to fight for freedom, it, it can mean marching in the streets. Yep. It could mean uh, filing petitions, mm-hmm. news, like writing newspaper articles. Civil I mean, there's, there's a long history of fighting for freedom that isn't just going off to a foreign country and fighting a war. Yes, exactly. One thing I, I wanted to, to talk off to kind of cap this seg- segment off is getting to this notion that when the Revolutionary War started, these were still Englishmen. I mean, English rights. When did Mm -hmm. the American identity start coming out? Can you clarify what you mean with that? (laughs) Well, the the American identity, as we as we think about the the revolutionaries identifying themselves as Americans as opposed to Englishmen, Ah. so drawing a distinction of of uh, a separation between the crown. Brother Matthew, you want to handle that first, man? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I think it depends on who you ask. you know, I was actually just, uh, I just visited the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. Mm. And uh, when, I was, when I was talking to one of their curators there, they told me that they didn't want to use the term American 
they used the term revolutionaries. Yeah. Uh, mm. Because they were like, you know, we, we thought it was very difficult to pinpoint exactly when one specific group thought of themselves as American, as opposed to like, all these different groups of people, Native Americans who right. perhaps <laughs> allied with the Americans or, or they allied with the British, mm-hmm. uh, African Americans who ran off to join uh, the British mm-hmm. uh, after Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Yeah. I mean, they would have seen themselves as revolutionaries too. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I actually thought that that was a really a really smart way to do it, that, that, that it all ties back into this conversation about freedom and what freedom means to the individual and to a group of people. Right. Um, I, I do think that there's people like Washington and Jefferson and Madison who do try to create uh, a national culture, an American culture, uh, but it's really, I mean, it, it's culture that really, I think, is supposed to resonate more with white Americans. Yeah. And, um, and ultimately, I don't think it really... It doesn't really take root, uh, clearly, because, you know, sectionalism grows and evolves. And so even when we get up to the time of the Civil War, you know, most Americans are not seen eye to eye about what it means to be an American. Right. Uh, because you have half of the country willing to go to war uh, over to protect the institution of slavery. Yeah. So and promises were <laughs> it, 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 And even you, you, and you could even say today, you know, you could ask somebody, you just walk up to somebody on the street and you say, well, what is an American? And where did that idea come from? When did it start? I mean, I do think that a big thing that factors into this is how people see themselves. And if, if they don't really document that or record it, uh, I think it's very hard to pin that down to a specific era or year. Or I mean, it could be one of those things where it's just an evolving thing. But, you know, we're still figuring out what it means to be American even today. Yeah. And that's a really big point. Um, I'm really glad it got mentioned because... You know, we were talking before the show um, about how American identity has a multifaceted history. You know, you know, I, I grew up as Afro, as Afro Latino. My mother was born and raised in Panama. Um, <clears throat> I was born here in the states. But growing up as an Afro Latino, when I hear about the Black American experience, I tell people I'm very much aware of what my experience is as a Black American with Indigenous roots. However, I know that most people think America means white. And even when it says that, even when people say, well, Ameri- you, you, you're a black American, they don't realize America was divided up in segments. At one point, the English came late to the party. It was the Spaniards who were here in the 1500s in the Southwest. And as uh, the American uh, as, as colonial government started to expand out that way, they had to negotiate for territory or fight wars you know, over that. And they not only took over the territory in time, but they took all the enslaved people of African descent with them. So you have people in American history who may have been black, but they had Spanish roots. And they were, you know, um, they saw themselves as Americans, but they had a very distinct history. And they were having to deal with people who were, for example, Gullah Geechee in the Carolinas. You know, they were enslaved by people from Barbados in Charleston and Savannah. But they were Americans, but they had an indigenous Caribbean history. And the entire time all that was going on for black Americans, they had to fight the narratives of ignorance from the white American experience on the founding fathers. They didn't, you know, they heard the term, they heard the claims of freedom, they heard the claims of principle, but they still were fighting to let the people know we, we're being forced into an identity that doesn't fit us fully. <laughs> Some were told to go back to Africa. Others were told, no, we may not have been brought here willingly, but we have earned the right to be here. But we're trying to get our identities understood. And like Douglas mentioned in his speech, what is the 4th of July to a slave? You know, that was a conversation that um, that conversation was a crucial conversation, but for many, they couldn't understand it because they didn't realize how many different levels of enslavement happened for people of African descent. And it's the same thing for people of European descent. You know, there were revolutionaries who supported things like the, um, there were revolutionaries who looked at the French Revolution and they support the French Revolution. But then when the Haitian Revolution happened, you know, Frederick Douglass supported them and the founding father said, oh, well, we can't join, can't join that. <laughs> Because that's a revolution that was led by enslaved people. And they never had that full understanding of what an American understanding would look like when the principles switched and they weren't the main benefactors. That's when it became a matter of saying, well, are you guys really American? You're supporting the Haitian Revolution with Tallulah, and that means that you're going to end up fighting against us. So we have to shut that down. If they had a real reckoning, then that wouldn't have been a problem. And that's why we have to have that conversation. But it really is an interesting dynamic, you know. 
Thanks, Gabriel. And, and I, I think on that, the reckoning is what we're going to come back to after our break. And, and that reckoning being, you know, fast forward 100 years after the revolution to, to the Civil War and then 100 years after that uh, till, till you have the Civil Rights Movement. We'll come back to that conversation here on Fed Talk on Federal News Network after a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Net- Federal News Network. I'm here with Gabriel Graves of the Prince George's African American uh, Museum and Cultural Center and Matthew Costello from the White House Historical Association. Uh, we've been talking about the intersection between President's Day, Black History Month, uh, what the, the story of America, Americans, and in, in all of its different forms. And uh, earlier we've been talking about uh, kind of these these paradoxes of, of freedom in our nation's founding and and what that meant to different to different folks the, the founders versus versus uh, enslaved people African Americans and others here in the country and we were talking about a reckoning that that the founders yeah. knew would eventually come uh, but couldn't deal with at at, at their yeah. time uh, and that we do know uh, that came to a head in in the Civil War and and then you know kind of came to to real fruition. Uh, in the civil rights movement, and and so I was hoping we can kind of pull, try to drag us toward our, our present day, and and talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the, that period in the 1800s, uh, the role of uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, his relationship with with Douglas uh, and other African American leaders as the nation went went through these things, and uh, and maybe Matthew, uh, maybe you can, you know, bring us forward a little bit, and then and then I certainly want to bring Gabriel's perspective in on this as well. Sure. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that there was there was going to be a reckoning over these conversations of freedom and liberty, uh, especially when you deny those things to so many different groups of people. Um, and it, it's going to start to to grow out in resistance movements. Uh, there's going to be uh, insurrections. There's going to mm-hmm. be uh, the rise of different social reform movements in the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, so as, as the country is heading politically towards what will become the bloodiest uh, war that America actually fights, is in, you know, on its own soil, mm. um, you know, this question of it, will slavery be allowed to expand, um, it, there's a volatile mix between expansionism and slavery. Um, and when the Missouri Compromise is secured in 1820, that pretty much ensures that as the country continues to move west at the expense of Native Americans, uh, that slavery and enslaved people are also going to be pushed west. Mm. And as a result, um, it, it becomes more entrenched for the south uh, and, and for westerners in places like uh, Texas, Missouri, Kansas. And this idea of compromise, uh, you know, something that really the founders did early on, and their forebears then will continue to do. They keep trying to compromise. Inevitably, they're going to run out of compromises. And uh, one of the things I always like to point out with people, because <clears throat> we mentioned him earlier about uh, Lincoln and Douglas, and I'm sure Gabriel will talk more about this, but um, you know, we laud Lincoln as the great emancipator. And but that really then kind of that that glosses over. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had a very complicated relationship. Uh, with slavery uh, and the idea of equality for African Americans. Mm. Um, so I, I think everybody tends to point to sort of, you know, his last efforts as president. He's assassinated. 
but, you know, for most of his life, uh, Abraham Lincoln did not see a society where whites and blacks could coexist. Yeah. Uh, that was something that he just he didn't see it. And in fact, he was a, early on, he was a proponent of colonization, which if people are not familiar with that, uh, the idea that you would essentially send African-Americans quite often back to a country that they didn't even know, uh, you would send them to a place like Liberia, uh, and you would essentially remove the free black population. Um, and they thought that this would be a solution uh, in, in, as a secondary step to abolishing slavery. Uh, so it goes to show you that you could have people who were in favor of abolishing slavery, but at the same time did not want African-Americans in American society. Mm -hmm. I was just a hat tip because, I mean, that really is. There was something I was uh, trying to remember the name of, and I found it up. It's called the uh, Panama the Panama Plan, you know, again, being Afro-Latino. I remember with the, with the colonization dynamic. I think that's a very critical point to remember. During the era of uh, abolition of abolitionism, it wasn't as if you were good in the eyes of black Americans just because you said, I hate slavery. Because when it came to northern states versus states in the south, there was a power dynamic. They may not have valued um, slavery up in the north, but there was a competition because of agrarian societies and um you know, shifting the balance. And so for many abolitionists, of course, they would fight to end slavery as long as it would depower those <laughs> who um, were not in, who were in that camp. But they did not want black people or enslaved peoples of back, different backgrounds to be equals. Lincoln was willing to at one point send people, send, send those of African descent to Panama. <laughs> and that plan fell through, actually. It was going to be on a small little strip of land, you know, about, you know, an immense amount of enslaved African-Americans sent to a small piece of land was never going to work, but many black Americans who called it out were not heard. Douglas pushed Lincoln on the issue the entire time. This is why the Haitian Revolution matters, because the Haitian Revolution, you know, which was inspired by the French Revolution and also inspired by the work of the American Revolution, had a very strong um, presence in the minds of black Americans. When the Haitian Revolution happened, what many don't understand is that those who fought in that revolution also fought on behalf of the American Revolution. There is a monument in Savannah, Georgia, that honors those um, Haitian soldiers that France sent to fight on behalf you know, of the revolution. Now, they lost their lives in droves, um, but they were still sent as cannon fodder to fight. And then after they fought, they went back home to Haiti and said, well, if they could fight against the British, then why can't we fight for our own freedoms. And then when it became the most, when the Haitian Revolution succeeded, it inspired fear in the minds of the founding fathers and other um, white Americans who were fearful of a slave insurrection. And many don't realize in black American history, Lincoln and others were well aware of multiple slave rebellions that happened leading up to the Civil War. There were actually 200 plus slave rebellions that happened in, in U.S. history. And so when it comes to the very idea of Lincoln being the one that freed the slaves, many black Americans and others have said, we actually freed ourselves long before that. You know, at one point, if you look in history in the South, there's something known as the Gullah Wars. There was also called the Seminole Wars, but it was originally called the Gullah Wars. People from Gullah Territory and Buford and, um, you know, places in, in Savannah and so forth in uh, Charleston, they joined with indigenous Americans in the Seminole Nation, and they fought back in guerrilla warfare, and they actually won their freedom. Jackson did not like them. Andrew Jackson did not like them, but they didn't want to raise people's alarms that enslaved Africans were fighting back. And so, history-wise, they said, oh, this isn't another Indian war. They didn't say, we have a history of Africans and Native Americans joined together. They just tried to say it's another Indian war. But it was a war of enslaved Africans resisting. And many of them fled to the Spanish Empire, fought against them, went to Mexico on the Underground Railroad because the Underground Railroad also went south. <laughs> so all that being said, um, when you see the history of the multiple slave rebellions, the New York Conspiracy of 1712, the Prosser Conspiracy of 1800, the Turner, the Nat Turner Rebellion in 1831, um, the Stono Rebellion of 1831 that happened the same year, a rebellion in Louisiana in 1811, when you see how these things are building up, you can see why Lincoln... Um, may have been hesitant to acknowledge black Americans have valid views because you have to go the whole way with that. <laughs> for him to acknowledge these people have fought for their freedom 
just like our ancestors fought <laughs> against the British, that would empower an entire segment of people, and the nation wasn't ready for that. And when Douglas and Lincoln were debating, um, it was really crucial for Douglas to tell Lincoln, you are not truly freeing us if all you do is remove slavery but not change the minds of people who want to have us enslaved. If you free us from enslavement, but you don't help out with changing the consciousness, what's going to happen? You're going to have people that won't offer jobs or they'll try to sabotage or they'll outright do hostility and say, well, there's no more enslavement happening. And that's what he predicted. Um, and it came to pass in the Reconstruction era with the uh, with new Jim Crow and black slave codes. This happened in the North as well. In Ohio, um, Elijah Lovejoy, I, be I believe, he was a white abolitionist who was killed by other white Northerners who did not like him fighting on behalf of raising awareness of black Americans. There were multiple lynchings that happened up north as well as in the south, and black Americans after Lincoln's era realized that it wasn't enough to get the chains lifted because white Americans had not been taught that we are equals. They were taught, um, they were they, for those who uh, didn't want to deal with Reconstruction, they were taught to get rid of slavery, but they didn't realize that abolitionism would be dangerous if they didn't deal with the paternalistic side of it. And that's why that resistance spirit, as American revolutionaries go, that's why that resistance spirit has to be understood. When Douglas predicted the era of Reconstruction and the rise of the KKK and the black codes that put black marriage in a worse position, he had hoped that that stuff would be acknowledged, but it wasn't. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Brian well, Stevenson. And, uh, and, to, and to add on to that, since we're kind of moving forward, um, I'd highly recommend it if, if nobody's ever read it before, uh, but there's a great book called The Strange Career of Jim Crow mm. uh, by C. Van Woodward. Uh, and it's, it's an old book, but it's a classic. And he's writing this in the context of the civil rights movement in uh, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. And uh, he takes this idea because, you know, people in those days, white Americans were saying, you know, this is the way things have been in the South. It's the way that things always have been. And he sort of turns that argument on its head when he says, well, you know, actually, a lot of these very discriminatory measures towards African-Americans, uh, the North had these things. Yep. Uh, the, the North had, uh, you know, separate accommodations, separate steamboats, yep. uh, uh, passage, uh, separate hotels. So he's, when Southerners are fighting the idea of desegregation in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you know, and they say, well, this is the way it's always been. Well, he says, well, actually, segregationist policies uh, were, were, you know, they were pretty present in the North uh, well, right. well before then. Right. So you, you can't really use history as that counter argument uh, because, you know, segregationist policies happened everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it, it's and it's, you know, as we as we're advancing the conversation, um, you know, as we move into the 20th century, um, you know, we have the great migration where African Americans are leaving the South, they're heading to the North, but they're running into similar resistance. Yep. Um, you know, it may not be Jim Crow, but uh, there's there. different discriminatory measures already in place yep. uh, waiting for them. Yeah. Thank you so, math so much, Matthew. And I think that that's, that's so important. The, the ongoing dynamics, this reference of the strange career of Jim Crow is, is really fascinating to think about that these weren't unique experiences to the American South, but, but were in fact endemic across the country. Uh, we need to take our last break before we enter our last segment. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're in the last segment of our show. And in this last segment, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground today talking about the, the American experience and, and how much the African-American experience has been integral to that, but often undertold and, and, and not told with, a, with enough nuance. And uh, our friends at the White House Historical Association uh, as well as with the Prince George's African-American Museum and Cultural Center, are doing a lot of really great work uh, to tell these stories, to bring community together uh, 
And even if you're not here in the area, have great resources online uh, available on their sites. And so I wanted both Matthew and Gabriel to, to talk about what they and their organizations, what the historical community is doing uh, to keep black, black history alive and tell these uh, stories. And, and Matthew, I'd, I'd love for you to, to tell us a bit more about uh, slavery in the president's neighborhood, uh, the, the newest initiative from the, the White House Historical Association. I had a chance last night to uh, uh, cruise the website uh, on my phone and uh, found the, the resources to be very accessible um, easy to digest, but but was really surprised by the amount that was there. Uh, you you guys have really done a great job. Well, and uh, you know what I will say, just as a disclaimer to begin with, you know there's there's a lot of great scholars and organizations and sites who are have really embraced this history, who have stepped into it, and they're doing a fantastic job. Um, you know. What we wanted to do was, you know, tell the stories of the free and enslaved African Americans who lived, worked in the White House, but also worked in the president's neighborhood, mm. uh, because I think we get so fixated on the White House um, that we kind of forget that there was an entire community of people uh, living right there in that space in D.C., uh, both early D.C. and post-emancipation. And, uh, you know, it, it was it, some of this history is very uh, it, it's very wrenching to read about because, you know, you, you go to school and you read about the presidents and you hear all these wonderful things about them. Um, and then, you know, you read, uh, for example, about Andrew Jackson purchasing an eight-year-old girl named Emmeline uh, for one of his grandnieces. And, you know, it, it just kind of, it changes how you view that figure. And as a, as a father, uh, as somebody who has a daughter, I mean, it, I don't know how you can't, how you can't put yourself in that moment where you think about what it would be like as a parent to have a child taken from you. And it gives me a, a much deeper appreciation for other organizations and sites that have really been grappling with this history. And uh, I'm glad that we're, you know, we're joining that conversation now. Um, and it's, it, it's been a lot of work, but I also think that it's, it's important because, you know, the white house, uh, I think most people see it as a symbol. Uh, it's similar to like the Declaration of Independence, and uh, that you know most Americans see it as this. It's a symbol of democracy, of freedom. Uh, but you know what? Symbols oftentimes have a very deliberately constructed history and memory, and oftentimes the history is much more complicated and complex and messy, and sometimes, frankly, uh, outrageous and. and you know, I, I think that's part of our mission uh, to tell the stories of White House history, right. but it's also to tell the stories of the people that lived in there, lived there, and worked there. It's, you know, it's not these stories aren't just about presidents and first ladies. Uh, it's about all people. Yeah, I really appreciate that sentiment, Matthew. And wh where can folks find more information about this this slavery in the president's neighborhood project about the White House Historical Association? So uh, you can go online to www.whitehousehistory.org slash SPN introduction, and that'll take you to our homepage. And on there, we have an interactive timeline that features all of the new uh, content, all the articles that we have, both about enslaved households and individuals or families that we've been able to identify. Uh, we have an index of identified enslaved people that we've been able to uh, uh We've been able to uh, label and identify. Uh, we have, I think it's just over 300 names. Uh, but, you know, as we put as the disclaimer that this process is ongoing, and we certainly expect to find more, you know, uh, that's the other thing that I think most people just don't understand is that, um, you know, enslaved people were not allowed to read, to write. They were not taught these things. They Most of them could leave no written records behind. So we have to use a variety of different types of sources to tell their stories. Uh, including, um, you know, things like census records, newspapers, uh, court records, uh, presidential papers, because sometimes that is a place where they will identify individuals. Um, but the, the key is, is that these voices are there. You know, you, you just have to, you have to dig deep enough. You have to look and you have to collaborate with people. And that's been a big part of what we've done. We've worked with independent scholars and uh, other uh, historic site leaders, um, and even with uh, 
one of the descendants, um, uh, one of the descendants that we've worked with, and we've heard ever since we've launched. Now we're starting to hear from other descendants, so we're. That's such exciting news, Matthew, and I really look forward to seeing how this project continues uh, to evolve. And uh, Gabriel, can you tell us a bit more about the, the ongoing programs and opportunities for folks to engage with with you and your colleagues at the the PG African American M- Museum and Cultural Center, and where folks can find more information? Stellar. So. Um, if you go to our website, PGA, pgaamcc.org, um, that has uh, all the information regarding, you know, the different exhibitions we have, um, things regarding um, the continual history, uh, uh, the continual historical discussions that we do around North Brentwood as the first African-American incorporated municipality in all of Prince George's County. And, you know, Prince George's, has, Prince George's County has the largest amount, the highest amount of wealthy black Americans in the country, so that's an international story. We, um, our website talks about that. Our um, programs that we're having coming up for Black History Month, uh, we have a theme called More Than a Month. And the reason we're doing this, we're pushing this is because, like I said earlier, black history can only be discussed so much within the shortest month of the year in February. And so we want to encourage people to take ownership of their learning, to know that you don't have to only talk about black American history one time in a month. Well, what we're doing at the Cultural Center right now, um, we also are having people um, who have come through who, specialize, who specialize in genealogy. Uh, as a cultural center, we also want to give people space to participate, especially in, as it concerns education and teachers. Um, so something coming up this Saturday, for example, is called um, our, it's one of our civic activism workshops. The National Council of Elders will be present. The National Council of Elders was an organization that was created by one of Martin Luther King's closest friends, Dr. Vincent Harding and James Lawson was also a part of that. They're gonna be discussing how to build beloved communities and how to do things regarding uh, keeping awareness of our stories because for black Americans, uh, oral histories are very important. And we are very uh, strategic about helping people to come through. Uh, one of the things we do is call uh, community treasure chest where we encourage people to know that the community is the treasure and they should know how to archive and document their history um, and to remember their stories. We've done work and we're doing more work with people that know how to help others find their records, the records of their ancestors, so that they can have uh, a full understanding of where they come from and know that our museum is a space for that discussion. So those are the things we got. Great. That's that's so excellent. And I, I really appreciate both your time, Gabriel and Matthew, from the White House Historical Association, from the Prince George's African American uh, Museum and Cultural Center. Encourage our listeners to, to check it out. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a wonderful weekend. We hope you enjoyed the conversation.